When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Three, two, one. When I've worked it out, I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer. Jim Calhoun, NASCAR icon Dale Earnhardt Jr. Kirk Herbstreet is on the phone. Here we go. Welcome in, everybody. Episode 250 of the podcast that is sweeping America. The Air Tour Sports Podcast. People, listen, I said it last episode, and I'm just going to continue to stand by it. I am amazed. We are now almost into the middle of May. We have not had a sporting event on U.S. soil in two full months And somehow, the content continues to roll out. First of all, shout out to the Korean Baseball League for giving us something to watch. But I am just amazed at how much there is to talk about in the world of sports, in the world of college sports, and it is absolutely no different today. It is Thursday, May 7th, and huge day for this show because a couple things. One, Kentucky picks up a massive commitment from a kid named Olivier Saar, best transfer on the transfer market. He will now go to Kentucky. It's still a debate over whether he can get eligible for next season or not. Uh, UConn also, by the way, picks up a nice commitment. I'm going to talk about that. And then finally, uh, Louisville. Our old friends at Louisville got another notice of allegations from the NCAA. I actually am not going to sit here and tear apart Louisville because I think if the NCAA wants to do what's right, they will go after Rick Pitino and not Louisville. This, of course, is an issue stemming back to Rick Pitino when he was the head coach at Louisville, not Chris Mack, not any of the current players. So we're going to get into all that. Open with Olivier Saar, go to Louisville, and we'll close with UConn. And after that, how about this? Listen, The quarantine tour of 2020 rolls on, and the one thing that's been great about this quarantine, if such a thing exists, is that it has allowed me to get a lot of great guests on this show. You know who I've had, Mason Jones, Emmanuel Quickly, Rick Barnes, Mark Pope, Damon Stoudemire last week, Chris Broussard uh, earlier this week, and that list continues today. Really fun interview with a guy by the name of Dan Issel. And for those of you who kind of vaguely know the name but aren't totally familiar, Dan Issel is actually like one of the iconic both college, ABA, NBA players that the sport is. He's like a, he's an NBA Hall of Famer, okay? So first things first, second NBA Hall of Famer I've had on in the last two months with Bill Walton earlier 
this spring. But Dan Issel joins the show. He was an icon at Kentucky. He played in the ABA. He played in the NBA. But what he has really been part of the last few years, he is part of an initiative to bring an NBA team to the city of Louisville. He played on what was the only professional team in the state of Kentucky when he played for the Kentucky Colonels of the ABA. And he is really trying to uh, start this campaign to get an NBA team to Louisville. It's actually a very interesting interview, just the process of getting an NBA team, all that stuff. But I would also add, we have a great conversation about his time in basketball. After we get past all the stuff about whatever, uh, getting a team to, to Louisville, we talk about his playing career, playing against Pete Maravich, playing against Wilt Chamberlain, playing for Adolph Rupp. If you're an old school basketball junkie, and I think most people listening to this show probably aren't old enough to have seen Wilt Chamberlain, seen Pete Maravich. It's a really fun interview, and I'll be honest, I really enjoyed it. Not going to lie, me and Dan have been texting left and right since this interview went up, or since I did this interview. Great guy, really fun. I'm just going to be blunt. I will probably have him again on this show because he is a great storyteller. So stick around for that. The quarantine tour of 2020 rolls on. We're going to get to the topics of the day in a minute. But before we do, I want to remind everybody, please make sure you're subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. You can do it on iTunes. You can do it on the Podcast Addict app. If you have an Android, the Podcast Addict app is the way to go. Podbean, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, Pod Paradise, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure you're subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Also, make sure to rate and review the show. Give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you like. Let us know what we're doing well. And while I'm on the subject, I should just say once again, I I know I've said it a few times, but I just want you guys to know I genuinely appreciate everybody who has downloaded this show during the quarantine. I know that this is a time where you frankly don't have as much time to listen to this kind of show. Maybe you're not traveling to work. Maybe you're not driving. Maybe you're not flying, obviously, in a time like this. You're not going to the gym. And I know your listening hours are limited. Maybe you're spending more time with your wife, with your kids, with your husband, with your family. I appreciate everyone that has listened to this show and continue to listen to this show as we've gone through the quarantine and hopefully not trying to get, uh, you know, be Dr. Fauci here, but hopefully the worst is behind us and hopefully we can get back to some semblance of normal soon. But really do want to thank you guys for listening and making this show a part of your day. Uh, finally, if you want more AT, make sure you're following the Instagram page. Aaron underscore Torres underscore sports underscore podcast. A lot of you always say to me, AT, we want more AT, more shows, more this, more that. I'll tell you this. If you want more AT, your best bet is to follow the Instagram page because whenever there is breaking news, I will go on there and react to it. And I did that certainly on, I guess it was Wednesday when Olivier Saar committed. So if you want more Aaron Torres, that is probably the place to get it. And finally, Aaron Torres, podcastquestions at gmail.com. If you want to get in on the show, ask questions, Aaron Torres, uh, podcastquestions at gmail.com. All right, people, no more time to waste. Pay attention. You in the back, pay attention. Because as I said, it has been unbelievable how much content has come out of the last six weeks, eight weeks without sports. And that continued this week, certainly in the college basketball world, which is obviously where we spend the bulk of our time on this show with the biggest story coming on Wednesday afternoon. And I know I always say, oh, did AT do it again or did AT do it again? And let's be honest, it's a catchy line. It's a catchy phrase. But I got one question for you. Did John Calipari 
do it again? Or did John Calipari do it again? Because Kentucky was a program that desperately needed a big guy, desperately needed a a, a, a rim protector, a shot blocker, or a, an athletic guy at the five spot. As of like literally a week ago, it looked like they had no options. Instead, uh, Wake Forest fires Danny Manning, Olivier Saar, their starting center, a guy that was third team all ACC, enters the transfer portal, and two days later, John Calipari gets the deal done. So first off, just a quick shout out to the Kentucky staff. Once it became clear that this kid was at least considering a transfer and then in fact entered the transfer portal, they made him a priority. They got it done. They didn't let any other school get involved. And of course, now Olivier Saar is a Kentucky Wildcat. It capped, by the way, just an absurd two weeks for this kid. I mean, first of all, Keep in mind that two weeks ago, he thinks he's going to be at Wake Forest. He thinks he's going to be playing for Danny Manning. He thinks he's going to be hopefully at a program helping them get back to a level that they haven't been at in a long time. The coach gets fired. New coach gets hired. The new coach makes him the top priority. He goes after Kentucky in the media, which I'll be honest, I really actually didn't have a major fundamental issue with what uh, Steve Forbes said. He actually even went so far as to say no offense. And I did understand what Steve Forbes was saying, which was stay here, finish what you started. And oh, by the way, which we're going to get into in a minute, this is the only place where you're guaranteed to play next year. And so I had no problem with that, but that's not really the point. That's ancient news at, at this point because Olivier Saar is officially a member of the Kentucky Wildcats. And so first and foremost, what I, I want to like make sure if you take home one thing away from this, it is very simply this. This guy was, in my opinion, the best transfer to enter the portal in terms of a big guy. If you guys remember, a few weeks ago, Matt Harms from Purdue enters the portal, and I just said, look, I don't see the fit with Kentucky. Nothing personal against the kid. Nothing personal against the program. I don't like the way he plays. He wants to hang out on the perimeter. He wants to shoot threes. And I actually give Matt Harms a little bit of credit. He didn't go to the biggest brand. He didn't go to the most successful program. He didn't go to the place with the biggest fan base. He went to the place that fit him best. And I truly believe BYU was that school. Well... Two weeks later, Olivier Saar enters the transfer portal, and guess what? It all works out for John Calipari because this kid is a better player, he's a better fit, and assuming he can get eligible, I think he is the missing piece to this team. And so let's get into that part that I just mentioned because when you have a conversation about Olivier Saar, it is very important to remember one very simple thing, and it's something you have to discuss off the top. He is not, right now, by technicality, eligible to play this coming season. And by the way, that was the best and strongest argument that Wake Forest had working in their favor. If you want to play college basketball next year, there's only one place you're guaranteed to do it, and it is at Wake Forest University. Again, what I said a minute ago, let's finish what we started. And for people who don't understand, and I know 99.9% .9 of you probably do, if not 100%, but let me clarify for anybody who might be confused. Um, obviously, as we all know, most transfers have to sit out for a year, the exception being a grad transfer. If you graduate at one school and have eligibility left, you are allowed to leave, go play at another school without having to sit out. But under the current NCAA rules, if you are not a graduate transfer, you have to sit out for a year. Now, there is a waiver process. You can kind of explain why you left the program. 
why you decided to go to the next place, why the last place wasn't a good fit for you, but there is no guarantee that you will play the following season or be ruled eligible, and that is exactly what happened. That is, that is exactly really the situation that Olivier Saar is in at this point is very simply this. He's a true junior. He's played three years of college basketball. He is not on track to graduate after three years. Like most of us, he's going to need a fourth year. Like some of you, he's not going to need the fifth, sixth, seventh year. But again, neither here nor there. Back to Olivier Saar. And he is a guy that is not on track to graduate. And so as of right now, he is not going to be eligible for next season. And I saw a couple college basketball writers did say, uh, you know, Evan Daniels and I kind of exchanged some tweets on on Twitter, and Evan's 100% correct, is that traditionally a guy who, uh, basically the NCAA doesn't hand out waivers just because a guy's coach got fired. And so I think there is a very realistic possibility that Olivier Saar does not get eligible next year at the University of Kentucky. At that point, he ha- he would have to weigh. He has said, if I'm not eligible, I'm just going to go overseas and play and prepare for the NBA draft. I actually, two things. So let, 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 first, let me address that. One, I find that really hard to believe. I think if, if John Calipari can get him to Kentucky, he will stay at Kentucky for the 2020-2021 season because, first of all, if he does submit a waiver, the process is going to take a while and he's already going to be on campus. And so even if he gets the waiver denied, you know what John Calipari is going to say? He's going to say, look, stay here, finish your degree. By the time, by then, then it could be October or November. We don't even know what kind of team you're going to go to, what kind of team you're going to get set up with. Stay here, finish your degree, work out in front of NBA scouts. We're going to pimp you up. If you want to declare, even without playing in the 2021 draft, we'll support you because as I said on the last episode, never forget... Hamadou Diallo came to Kentucky for a half a season, redshirted, and declared for the NBA draft before he ever played a game. So it's not as though there is no precedent for a player actually not playing at Kentucky, redshirting, and still electing to declare. That is certainly a possibility. That is certainly something to consider. I believe once he gets to campus, he will at the very least finish the season there, maybe even the following season, depending on everything else. I also think this. I also think if Olivier Saar did not believe in some way, shape, or form that he had a legitimate chance to get a waiver, I don't believe that he would have transferred. Now, what is that chance? What is the percentage? I don't know. What is the reasoning behind it? Again, traditionally, players don't get waivers because their coaches get fired. I also think you can make a case that this is a pretty unique scenario, right? Think about it. Your coach didn't just get fired. Your coach got fired, one, during a pandemic. Two, the coach gets fired during a pandemic, and you don't even know when you can return to campus. You don't have a chance to meet the coach face-to-face, the new coach face-to-face. And oh, by the way, the coach gets fired at the beginning of May. It's after, essentially, the draft process is concluded, so you can't even declare for the draft. And so I think that will be Olivier Sarr's argument, is I know that you don't normally give out waivers for coaches who get fired, but think about it from my perspective, man. Is like, dude, I'm here. I'm ready to complete my senior year. Then some, my AD comes in and fires the coach that I came to play for. Um, he fires the coach that I came to play for in the middle of May. I can't even meet with my new coach, and I wanted to pursue other options. Now, I'll tell you this. Be a lot of backlash if, if John Calipari gets this waiver approved, but I think there's a legitimate case to be made there. I also think that when you just look at it from the broader perspective, never forget, 
the rule is very likely going to change next year. So players are very likely going to have the opportunity to um, transfer without having to sit out after this year. So does the NCAA kind of just get a little loose with the waiver policy? You know, you kind of had a few too many drinks, getting a little loose, having a little fun. The NCAA just says, screw it. This is all going to be for nothing anyway, so why start a holy war by not approving this waiver when in a year it won't even be an issue? And so I think there is a real possibility that this kid gets eligible for next season. And I'll tell you this, from here on out, the rest of this conversation, let's work from the perspective that Olivier Saar gets eligible next season at Kentucky. Because if he does, oh buddy, whoa buddy, because this kid is the final piece to what I believe is another potential national championship type team. We already know what the what the roster looked like prior to his commitment. They have two stud wings in BJ Boston, who look out, BJ Boston may be joining this show here sometime soon. Maybe a friend of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast before you know it. Stay tuned. Can't promise anything, but I'm kind of promising it. Terrence Clark, another stud. Terrence Clark, by the way, maybe. By the time it's all said and done, one of the two or three most athletic players to ever play at Kentucky, which is insane when you think about, or under John Calipari at least, I can't speak to what happened, uh, you know, 25 years ago, but when you talk about John Wall, Malik Monk, De'Aaron Fox, there have been a lot of great athletes in that program. I don't know that there's any better than Terrence Clark, so I love those two kids, both consensus top 10 players. I saw BJ Boston actually moved up in the 24-7 recruiting rankings. Um, and I love those guys. In the backcourt, you have Devin Askew, point guard, steady, not elite. You know, he's not a John Wall, De'Aaron Fox type, but he's kind of more of a Brandon Knight type. He's going to get the job done. He's going to be successful. Kentucky adds a transfer in Davion Mintz to kind of play on the ball, off the ball. I like that piece. And then in the front court, you got Keon Brooks, you got Lance Ware, you got Isaiah Jackson. But the one thing you were missing was, as I said, a true center, back to the basket, rim protector, lob it up, and he's going to throw it down, dunker. And that's exactly what Kentucky just got in Olivier Saar. And I think he is the perfect final piece. As I said the other day, he is a center that wants to play the way that John Calipari does. I already talked about Matt Harm, so I'm not going to get into it. But I believe that he is basically going to give you for people who haven't seen him play or don't know what he's about, I think he's basically going to give you like 80% of what Nick Richards gave you last year. Rim protector. I've said it a bunch. Rim protector, shot blocker, which is the same thing. Um, you know, dunker, finisher, uh, runs the floor really well, crazy athletic. I don't think he has that little 15-foot jump shot that Nick Richards had, but everything else that Nick Richards brought you, Olivier Saar is going to bring. And as I said, I believe that is the final piece to what is a really good team, a really talented team. And this is going to sound crazy, but as I just alluded to a minute ago, maybe the most athletic team that John Calipari has had when you add Olivier Saar with Terrence Clark, who's a freak athlete, BJ Boston, who's crazy athletic, uh, Isaiah Jackson, who's crazy athletic, Davian Mintz, etc. So I'm excited. I think it's going to be really fun. I hope he gets eligible. I'm all for, first of all, we haven't actually talked about the one-time transfer rule on this show. I actually am not in favor of it. I think it's going to be bad for college basketball. I've actually, and I've said this very publicly, what I am in favor of, though, if your coach gets fired, the coach you came to play for, I or the coach leaves, 
I think you should be able to leave too. I think you'd have to make a situation where if your coach leaves for a better job, he can't recruit players off his old roster. But I think if you go to a school to play for a coach, you should be allowed to go somewhere else because the bottom line is systems change, styles change, and there's a lot of guys both in football and basketball who their draft stock is really hurt when a new coach comes in. So Olivier Sar is coming in, really excited for the possibility there. And I just want to say one other thing really quick. I did want to give credit where credit is due. And that is to John Calipari. Look, we know the guy's reputation. We know he is Mr. One and Done, Mr. I love my high school recruits, my elite high school recruits, and we're going to bring in the best of the best, and John Wall and DeMarcus Cousins and Anthony Davis and Carl Anthony Towns and Jamal Murray and all that. But since John Calipari got to Kentucky, college basketball has changed. It is harder to keep players in your program for two, three, and four years, and it's also really hard to win with freshmen. And so I've thought over the last few years, frankly, that John Calipari hasn't been aggressive enough in the transfer market. Now, I will say in his defense, he was very staunch in saying that he believed that the transfer market was ruining mid-major programs. I actually think he's correct on that. But once the genie is out of the bottle, there's no going back. And I thought it was really to Kentucky's detriment that they weren't recruiting transfers, especially in this day and age when more and more players are leaving for the draft, whether they're ready or not. Guys like EJ Montgomery at Kentucky. Um, and also uh, when guys transfer more, right? You know, you get a player in as a freshman, and if they're not productive, they come back as a sophomore. They come back as a junior. They come back as a senior. That's just not the world we live in anymore. I wish it was different. I wish guys stayed and developed and got better. That doesn't happen in a lot of places. And so what's going to inevitably happen is no matter who you are, but especially at a place like Kentucky that recruits so many elite players, you're going to have holes on your roster that emerge out of nowhere late in the season. Tyler Hero has a great last six weeks of the regular season last year. I don't think Kentucky probably on Christmas thought they were going to have to replace him. They do. They go out and get Johnny Juzang. This year, nobody thought on Christmas Emmanuel quickly was going to be the SEC player of the year and a player leaving for the pros. Well, guess what? He is. You got to replace him. EJ Montgomery leaves for the draft. Maybe you weren't anticipating it. You got to replace him. And so the transfer market is a place that you have to go now. And so I give John Calipari so much credit because literally two, three weeks ago, four weeks ago maybe, you were looking at a roster that after they lost all five starters to the NBA was a roster that was composed of eight total scholarship players, six of them freshmen, and only one of them, Keon Brooks, had actually ever played college basketball. And you looked at that roster and you said like, dude, that's going to be tough. It's going to be tough to win with that roster as good as the freshmen are. And in the last couple weeks, John Calipari has really kind of put his arms around this transfer market and really, I think, done an incredible job filling literally every hole on his roster. So first of all, they got 11 players now so they can play five on five. They couldn't even play five on five at practice two weeks ago, but you could play five on five and you add athleticism, size, experience, which is a huge part. You have two guys, one that played in the ACC, one that played in the Big East and Davion Mint. And you got the kid Toppin, who's going to sit out next year, who is going to develop, and you're already starting to look at what your 2021-2022 roster could potentially look like. So I love what Calipari has done on the transfer market, and I give him so much credit. All right, quickly, I do want to hit on a couple other topics. The first one is the other big story that came out of this week. That is the University of Louisville. 
They are again in trouble with the NCAA. And for people who can't keep track of their Louisville scandals, this one had to do with the payment of Brian Bowen, not with the strippers in the dorm rooms, okay? And so we've been waiting for this day for a while. Basically, I've explained it many times, but I'll explain it again for people who don't understand. When an NCAA investigation happens, there's basically three parts to it, right? What happens is the NCAA comes to your campus, they interview a bunch of people, they investigate, and they deliver you what is essentially called a document called the Notice of Allegations, okay? It's what they think you did wrong, what they didn't like, what rules were broken, et cetera, et cetera. Then you have 90 days to appeal that to the NCAA. The NCAA listens to your appeal, and they have like 90 days after that to then respond to your appeal saying that this is our final finding, this is what you did, this is, this is what you like, this is what, whatever, right? And so Louisville is at the first stage now. The investigation has been done, the uh, NCA has been on campus, and now they have delivered that notice of allegation. So that is where we are at in this process, and I will say this, people freaked out about, oh, the, the allegations, the allegations should not be a surprise in the case of Louisville, okay? The reason they should not be a surprise is because all usually in an NCA case, it's a booster handing out a couple grand to a recruit, and you got to go to campus, and you got to interview people, and you got to figure out what's fact from fiction. In this case, Brian Bowen's dad testified in court. Brian Bowen's dad at a public hearing in court, hand on the Bible, under oath, swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth, Basically explained, yeah, we took a bunch of money from Louisville and Adidas to get Brian Bowen Jr. to the University of Louisville. And so because of that, none of the allegations should be a surprise. We knew it was coming unless you believe that Brian Bowen's dad was willing to perjure himself to throw Louisville under the bus. We kind of knew what the allegations were going to be. So they come out. And really quickly, I think it it becomes an interesting question in the case of Louisville for one very simple reason is that. How strictly do we punish Louisville for two different reasons? The first one is, in theory, you should throw the hammer at them. You should bring the hammer to them, whatever the verbiage is. I don't know, whatever. It's 9 o'clock on a Tuesday, Wednesday, whatever day it is. I don't even know. It's quarantine quarantine Wednesday. I don't even know. But bottom line is, look, you know, when it comes to the Louisville case, <laughs> I threw myself off right there. All right, let's get back on track here, people. So with the Louisville case, like there's two really interesting dynamics at play and really three, which we'll get into in a minute. The first dynamic is that it was Louisville's second major scandal in like a four-year period. And not only was it a second major scandal, but it was actually a scandal while they were still on probation for the previous scandal, which again was strippers in the dorm rooms. And as I said on this podcast at the time, as I said on Twitter, when you break NCA rules while on probation for breaking other NCA rules, that is actually the definition of the death penalty. That is what you're supposed to get the death penalty for. Now, Louisville's never going to get it because it would be too harmful to the ACC, to the TV contracts, the TV partners. It's never going to happen. But that is, in theory, why you're supposed to give out the death penalty. It's very simple. When I said that, when Louisville got in trouble, people got mad. Oh, Torres, he just, oh, he loves Calipari, and he's so... No, I'm just telling you facts. And it was funny because, like, two days later, all the other media circled back around, caught up with Nostra Torres, and realized, you know what? He's actually right. So... Louisville, on the one hand, you have a program that committed violations while under um, penalties for previous violations, right? Here's the second issue with Louisville, though. To their credit, and I do think they should be given credit for this, they are still to date the 
only program that fired their head coach for this investigation by the FBI. Now, you can argue it's because it was their second offense, not their first offense. It doesn't change the fact that they are still the only program to fire their head coach. Sean Miller, still at Arizona. Bill Self, still at Kansas. Will Wade, still at LSU. Bruce Pearl, still at Auburn. And so I also think Louisville should be given a little bit of credit for that too. And the question becomes, and I think the question that a lot of Louisville fans are asking is, dude, we fired the coach. We fired the AD. We fired the school president. Everybody who was involved in that situation is gone. Don't punish us. Don't bring the hammer to us. Don't give us a 10-year postseason ban. And I'm being a little facetious. It won't be a 10-year postseason ban. But why are you hammering us? We did what we were supposed to do. We got rid of the bad guys. Give us a chance. Don't punish Chris Mack. Don't punish his staff. Don't punish his players who had nothing to do with this. And I'm actually a little sympathetic to that. I actually believe there's something to that argument. Now, I will say, I don't know if that holds up in the NCAA's eyes because history tells us it won't. Remember, Ohio State, Tattoo Gate, Jim Tressel. They fired Jim Tressel. They still got a postseason ban in football. Um, Indiana, Kelvin Sampson. Fire Kelvin Sampson for making too many phone calls, which is a really funny scandal, by the way, to really think about that a guy got in trouble for making too many phone calls. Fast forward, he gets fired, Indiana still gets hammered. So I don't think Louisville's out of the dark here. But what I will say is something that I said on the podcast when Rick Pitino was first hired at Iona, and that is very simply this. If the NCAA wants to do what's actually right, what they really should do, don't hammer Louisville, go after Rick Pitino. And that's my question. Is Rick Pitino coming back to college basketball kind of the NCAA's get-out-of-jail-free card? And what I mean by that is this. Under a normal circumstance, your coach does something really stupid, you fire him, he's out of the sport, he's in the pros, or he's coaching high school, or he's coaching whatever, and you're kind of like, well, crap, we kind of got to punish the school because we can't punish the guy who actually broke the rules. But what makes the Louisville situation so different is not only did they fire the previous head coach, but the previous head coach is now back in college basketball, Rick Pitino. And so if you really break down the essence of this scandal at Louisville involving Brian Bowen, the NCAA really doesn't want to get mad at Louisville. They want to get mad at Louisville for enabling Rick Pitino and his staff for allowing them to do this, for allowing them to break the rules. So what better way, rather than getting back at Louisville with when Chris Mack, when nobody was there that was involved in this situation, rather than going after that guy, rather than going after his players who had nothing to do with this, they didn't have strippers in the dorms, they didn't take any extra benefits that we know of, and I'm not accusing anybody of anything, I'm just saying I don't know, nobody knows of anything, they didn't do anything wrong. So rather than going after them, why not go after the guy that got you in this mess in the first place, the guy that broke rules previously and still got another head coaching job in Rick Pitino? And a lot of people are telling me, well, that's not really the way it works, AT, blah, 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 this and that. Well, I'll tell you this. The NCAA does kind of have a deal here where they can really go after Pitino and limit the punishment to Louisville. And what is that situation? The situation is very simply this. If you remember, after the FBI trial, the NCA put new legislation in place where they put something in the rules called the head coach responsibility clause. What is the head coach responsibility clause? What it basically means is very simply this. Back in the old day, an assistant coach breaks NCA rules and the head coach can say, oh my God, I had no idea. How could I let that? 
My assistant running the streets, acting crazy. I had no idea. And by the way, you know who actually did that more than anybody is Rick Petito. And so under the old days, the head coach could basically say like, look, man, I'm trying to play by the rules, but my assistants are acting crazy. I can't control them when they're not in my eyesight. Well, guess what? The NCAA got tired of coaches, including Rick Pitino, using that excuse, and so they put in this new thing called the Head Coach Responsibility Act. It came directly after the FBI trial, directly after Rick Pitino used this for the second time, where they basically said, look, as a head coach, you have to be responsible for your staff. It is no longer an excuse if you are not directly tied to a violation that you are not responsible for. We can't just be firing all these assistants when the head coach is the one who is responsible for them, hence the Head Coach Responsibility Act. Why do I bring it up? It's because if there was ever a time to put this new rule in place, now has to be it, right? We have the guy who basically this rule was invented for, Rick Pitino. Oh, my God, my staff, I had no idea what they were doing. You have that guy who's back in college basketball, really served no major punishment. I understand he got fired from Louisville. It's an incredible job, but he's still coaching college basketball. He's got more money than he can ever spend. Was Rick Pitino really punished for what he did? Is Rick Pitino, and by the way, not only was he punished, but keep in mind, he got a job. Well, Andre McGee, who knows where he is? Jordan Fair, who knows where he is? So the assistant coaches have taken the fall for Rick Pitino, and now he still has a head coaching job. And so I don't know what will happen. Nobody does, because this rule has never really been put into place. But if there was ever a time to put this into place, it would be right now. It would be to say, look, Louisville, we have to punish you. We have to do something. We will give you a one-year postseason ban or scholarship reductions or whatever we deem necessary. But we're not really here to come after you. You did what you're supposed to do. You got rid of Rick Pitino. You got rid of the athletic director, Tom Jurich. Let's do the right thing. Let's limit the punishment, and let's go after the guy that we really want, which is Rick Pitino. And this is not me being personal against Rick Pitino. It's nothing like that. What it is, is though, is me saying it does seem unfair to go after Louisville when Rick Pitino is back in college basketball, and I do wonder if this is the first time that this rule gets put into place. It would not surprise me because I'm telling you, this is why this rule is in place, and I think it's a good application of it. Now, really quickly, I probably should mention what happens if you're found responsible. Well, first of all, Rick, I should mention, by the way, Rick Pitino already has a five-game suspension from the previous scandal that he never served because he was fired before he could serve it. But outside of the five-game suspension he already has, I don't know. What, what seems reasonable? I believe, if I'm not mistaken, you can get up to a one-year show cause as part of this Head Coach Responsibility Act, in which case uh, he could be suspended for up to a year. Now, do I think the NCAA will go that far? I don't know, but if you want to set an example for future coaches, don't let your assistants break the rules, that would be a great place to start. And again, I think it's fair because Rick Pitino hasn't really been punished for his role in multiple recruiting violations. His assistants are out of work. There's other assistants in the FBI trial that are out of work. Not Rick Pitino, though. And so if this is ever going to be used, this seems like the spot, and I will just be fascinated. Now, I will say one final thing. We'll get to UConn. We'll wrap is don't expect anything immediate. As I just explained off the top with Louisville, 
Uh, we are not going to get clarification on everything that happened here for probably about a calendar year, certainly not until the end of the next college basketball season, assuming it starts on time. So I don't think even if Rick Pitino is punished, it will happen in the next two, four, five months. I think it's something that could happen towards the 2020 one 2022 college basketball season. And speaking of 2021-2022, huge recruiting news for my UConn Huskies this week. Um, they had a kid, Adama Sinogo, I believe that's how you pronounce his name, 2021 high school recruit who decided to reclassify and commits to UConn, baby. And so I want to bring this up, not because I, I tend to generally break down high school recruiting commitments, but there are a few things at play here. One, first of all, I think he is the first of what I expect to be a growing trend of 2021 recruits reclassifying to 2020. Why will that happen? Because of this pandemic, right? The pandemic has put uh, the NCAA in a tough situation because not every player in the high school class of 2020 had gotten a qualifying SAT score. So what the NCAA basically had to say was, listen, to the kids that would normally take the, the SAT in the spring, we're not going to require you to get that SAT score because it's kind of unfair that you were going to take the test in March, April, May, June to get eligible for the fall and he can't take that test now. So what the NCAA basically said is that if you do, if you're a high school senior and you do not have the qualifying test score, it's okay. You can come anyway. It's like freaking Price is Right. Come on down. And so why do I bring it up as it pertains to this recruit? It's because there has been talk in the industry for the last two, three, four weeks that once this rule got put into place, once you did not need a qualifying SAT score to play college basketball or college sports next year, that we could see a slew of reclassifications. Adama Sinogo is the first one. Actually, Texas A&M's top recruit for 2021 announced on Wednesday that he too would reclassify, and there could be others. Musa Cisse, who's a top 10 kid, I believe he'll end up at LSU or the G League. I think he could reclassify. Jonathan Kaminga, I believe he will reclassify. Again, the G League, who knows what other college options he could have. But this is the first one. And let me just say, it is a massive, huge, mega moment for the University of Connecticut's basketball program. Now listen, I don't think this kid is like a program-changing player. Um... He's ranked like 80th in the class now that he has gone from the 2021 class to 2020. He's a project. He plays hard. He plays physical down low. But what I think it speaks to is something I've been saying on this podcast for the last nine months, and that is that we are starting to get back to a place that the UConn basketball program looks like the UConn basketball program that you remember from the 90s, the 2000s, through 2014 when Kevin Ollie was fired. I should note, by the way, Kevin Ollie's show cause was upheld. He will not be able to coach in college basketball anytime soon. That was for what essentially amounted to minor vi violations. But what happened was Kevin Ollie did the old Bruce Pearl, lied about him to the NCAA, and so he was punished. So Kevin Ollie, out of college basketball, irrelevant to this conversation because Adama Sinogo is a UConn Husky. And like I said, first of all, I, I, this to me is just another sign that UConn is headed in the right direction. He is the third player that commits in the class of 2020. All three of them are basically ranked in the top 125. And really, two things stand out about this. One, Dan Hurley is slowly reestablishing UConn's recruiting territory, okay? UConn, when they were at their best, really recruited the Northeast really effectively. 
Kemba Walker from New York City, Ben Gordon from right outside New York. Um, you know, Jeff Adrian was from Boston. Shabazz Napier was from Boston. That was who UConn recruited. Now, did they go to Texas to get a Mecca Okafor? Sure. Did they go other places to get other guys? But essentially, it was Maryland to the prep schools in New England. And if you're UConn, that's the only place you should have to recruit. Under Kevin Ollie, they're flying out to LA. They're flying down south, da 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 this and that. If you're a UConn coach, you really shouldn't have to go any further south than Maryland to get your players. So this is not only the third top 110 or so-ish recruit to commit to UConn this season, but all three are from the, 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 the northeast area, center from Baltimore, this kid at Adama Sinogo from New York City, also Andre Jackson from upstate New York. Compared also with the players that committed in the previous coach uh, recruiting cycle, James Booknight, who might be the biggest player of the year next year, he's from the New York City area, played prep ball in Pennsylvania, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, that's the first big point. UConn's recruiting, reestablishing its recruiting territory. Two, and it's something that Dan Hurley said throughout the last two years, is that when he got to UConn, the roster did not have players that looked like UConn players, that could compete with the elite programs in their conference, let alone nationally. And so I don't think UConn's quite there yet. But as they get set to go back to the Big East this year, and if you don't remember, UConn's going to the Big East. Um, I think they now have the athletes to compete in the Big East. James Booknight, who I just mentioned, if you did not watch UConn games, James Booknight, I'm not exaggerating when I say this, he might be the most athletic guard in college basketball, averaged 13 points as a freshman last year. It was funny, I was telling my mom, who listens to this show, happy Mother's Day, Mom, love you. Um, I was telling my mom, I actually think UConn got lucky in their case that there was a pandemic because, not trying to make light of a serious situation, but it was a situation where I kind of felt like if UConn, if the season had played out, UConn could have gotten hot in the conference tournament, made the NCAA tournament, and I think James Booknight could have played himself in a serious draft consideration. But he is back at UConn. Their top recruit, as I said, Andre Jackson, maybe the most athletic wing player in this class. Uh, Adama Sonogo, big guy down low. The other guy they signed, a big guy down low. And now you're starting to look at the puzzle pieces that look like a team, look like the players that can compete in the Big East. I would also say this. I think UConn's on a roll, man. I think UConn's on a roll. They finished last year strong. They won their final five games, I believe seven of their last nine. And that was a program that already had momentum going into next year, already had momentum going to the Big East. Now you're adding pieces in the offseason. And oh, by the way, the Big East is kind of in a year of transition, right? Seton Hall loses Miles Powell and loses Quincy McKnight and some of their best players. Um, Creighton, which I thought was going to be really good, lost their best player, Tyshawn Alexander, to the draft. So you really start to look outside Villanova. Villanova's going to be the preseason number one team in the country. I don't think there's any doubt. Beyond them, though, I kind of think UConn's right there in the mix as the second best team in the Big East. Now, time will tell, and they need to prove it on the court. But what I'm just saying is this is such an impressive run by Dan Hurley. This is such an impressive run in the way that he has upgraded the talent methodically. This guy is a relentless recruiter. This guy knew what UConn could provide. And I'll be honest, some of it was luck that was out of his control, and that was that UConn got to go back to the Big East. But this kid, Sinogo, is the real deal. He's a project. But I think in the bigger picture... Dan Hurley is the real deal. Real talent coming to UConn, talent that can play in the NBA. 
not quite one-and-done talent, but we're talking top 40, top 50 recruits, athletes, and players that I think can compete with the Villanovas, the Creightons, and then maybe eventually get to that national scale. I should mention, by the way, UConn almost won at Villanova last year. They should have beaten Xavier. So it's not like they were that far off anyway, and the talent continues to upgrade, and I am so, so, so excited about the UConn stuff. And uh, and yeah, man, I'm really excited about the UConn stuff. All right, so that is all for this portion of today's Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. And if you're not subscribed already, I want to remind you, please make sure you're subscribed. iTunes, Podcast Addict, Podbean, Spotify, Tune in radio. Wherever you listen to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, make sure you're subscribed. Also, make sure to rate and review the show. Give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, all that stuff. Again, I said it earlier, I genuinely appreciate so much of you guys, so many of you guys sticking with the show during this quarantine. I know it's hard to find time to listen to all your favorite shows, but I do genuinely appreciate keeping this in the rotation with everything else that you listen to, even during the quarantine. Can't wait till many of us get back to work. Uh, You're in the car more. Kids are back in school and we can get back to normal. But I hope everyone is staying strong during this crazy time. Finally, make sure you're following on Instagram, Aaron underscore Torres underscore sports underscore podcast, Aaron Torres podcast questions at gmail.com. That is all for today's Aaron Torres sports podcast. Want to give a quick shout out to my boy, Torrent Craig. Quick shout out to Rachel who hates my voice. Now, a very fun interview with Dan Issel. NBA Basketball Hall of Famer, NBA All-Star, ABA All-Star, leading scorer at Kentucky. We talk about a lot of fun stuff, including the possibility of getting an NBA team to Louisville, his experience playing against Pete Maravich, Wilt Chamberlain, and much more. All right, and joining me on the phone now, a Basketball Hall of Famer, NBA All-Star, ABA All-Star, leading scorer in the history of Kentucky basketball, and here to talk about a lot of different things, including uh, his attempt, uh, along with many others, to get an NBA franchise eventually to the city of Louisville. Again, the Basketball Hall of Famer, Dan Issel is on the phone. Dan, how you doing today? I'm terrific, Aaron. Thank you very much for having me. Well, I appreciate you coming on. I appreciate you coming on. And listen, I'm not going to lie, I did a lot of research on your career. I have a lot of questions for you about the basketball <laughs> element. No, 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 because listen, you are literally, uh, you know, now I'm just going to make you sound, sound, you know, a little older and I feel bad, but, you know, you're, you you can answer a lot of questions that people have about the history of the, of, of the sport and players that many of us or many people didn't see or didn't play against. So I got a lot of basketball questions for you, but I do want to start with this uh, NBA to Louisville stuff. I know this is a campaign that you've been on for years, you've been passionate about for years, and of course, uh, a big part of it, I would assume, is because you were part of a successful run of professional basketball in the state of Kentucky with the ABA back in the 1970s. So I, I know you've given this kind of elevator pitch a million times before, but would just love to know just off the top why you're so passionate about this and why it's so important to you. Yeah, for, for for several reasons, you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, uh, winning the ABA championship uh, with the Kentucky Colonels and uh, uh, my great teammates uh, like Artis Gilmore and Louis Dampier uh, was the uh, was the pinnacle of of my basketball career. And I remember how excited everybody in Louisville was during that time. And then, unfortunately. 
the Colonels were not one of the teams that uh, was taken into the NBA in, in the merger. Um, and also the fact that uh, Kentucky is just so passionate about their basketball. It doesn't matter if you're a UK fan or a U of L fan. Uh, everybody in the state of Kentucky likes the game of basketball. And, and, um, I think we can make some pretty compelling reasons why the NBA should be in Louisville. We have, uh, uh, not only fan support, but, uh, great corporate support. We have one of the finest arenas in the country here in Louisville, which was built, by the way, uh, uh, in, with the fact that an NBA team would be here one day. It has a, uh, a separate practice facility and all the amenities that an NBA team would wow. need. So, uh, if and when the NBA does decide to expand, uh, I think we can make a, a very good argument that uh, Louisville should be considered. What was the vibe uh, for professional basketball in the city? Because, I mean, obviously, look, um, you know, you, you hear the narratives, and we, we will never know until whatever city it is, by the way. It could be another city. It could be uh, Seattle, Las Vegas, whatever. But, uh, uh, you, you know, what was the vibe of the city, of the state, when there was professional basketball? Because I do think, obviously, the, the overarching idea would be that, you know, is it possible to have two high-profile basketball programs at the college level in the state? Uh, a couple other programs, by the way, Murray State, Western Kentucky, which is very well-supported. Is it even economically feasible to then uh, ask fans to, to buy tickets and support a professional team on top of the college teams? Uh, so, one, you obviously lived it, and two, what would you kind of personally think about that? Yeah, um, of course, you have to go back. That was a time, Aaron, where professional basketball wasn't, wasn't sure. nearly as popular as it is today. People don't realize this, but uh, as late, as the late 70s, mm -hmm. the NBA finals in a mm -hmm. lot of markets were carried on tape delay mm -hmm. after the 11 o'clock news. Yep. So, so when the ABA existed, uh, professional basketball wasn't nearly popular as it is today. As far as being able to support it, we have, we have reams of, uh, of data that shows Louisville and Kentucky can support a professional team. Uh, there was a study done not long ago by uh, by a strategic group called the Hungden Group, mm -hmm. and they uh, were commissioned by the mayor of Richmond, Virginia, and they looked at all the cities in in North America and and said it was based not on the popularity of the game, but on on things like market size, population growth, disposable income. Uh, and of all of the cities in North America that have none of the top four professional teams, they came to the conclusion that Austin, Texas, was best at supporting a professional uh, sports team, and Louisville, Kentucky, was number two. So um, I, I don't think there's any doubt that we have the resources here to support an NBA team. What about, you know, so, so, I, but I, I mean, I guess I would still say in practice, you can run all these metrics and all the, this, this data, but again, you know, it, it is just a totally different game with a totally different interest level. And obviously look, the, the University of Kentucky and the University of Louisville have uh, decades of built-in fan support, decades of whatever you want to say. And it was interesting because I was actually thinking about this this morning as I prepared for this call with you is um, 
I kind of have an interesting, um, I guess, perspective on this because I grew up in the state of Connecticut, and Connecticut is one of only two cities, kind of regions in the area that has a WNBA team that doesn't have an NBA team in the same city. Las Vegas is the other one. And the idea of bringing a WNBA team to the the, the city or the state of Connecticut, the, the city of Hartford, was that, you know, there's this overwhelming uh, support for the UConn women's basketball program, and it would translate to professional success of a professional team. And I don't want to say it hasn't worked because the the organization's been there, I think, 15 years and had a ton of success in terms of, uh, at the very least, maintaining. But I don't think it's been this this big, booming success. Um, And so I guess just what I would say is, you know, just from your personal experience or your personal opinion outside of whatever study is shown or whatever, do you think, do you believe that fans would be excited, support um, a professional team in that region? Aaron, I I would say this, looking at it very realistically, uh, and this is the way it should be. I think initially there would be a great support of a new NBA team, the only professional team, sports team, that would be in the state of Kentucky. However, after that newness wears off, it would be uh, imperative uh, that the team put a a competitive and entertaining product on the floor. Uh, and, and if you don't do that, then I, I, I don't think that you really deserve to have the support just sure. because you're a professional basketball team. So that would, it would be incumbent on us to make sure that we're able to do that. What about the opposite perspective? Um, you know, something that, that I've heard from people say in North Carolina is that the when the Charlotte Hornets came, not that they've even been that successful, but they're not you know necessarily the the, the biggest glitziest organization, but they do take something away from the fact that Duke is there, North Carolina's there. It's one more talking point in the local media, all that stuff. I mean, what would you say to a Louisville fan or a Kentucky fan that says, I like hearing about my Wildcats. I like hearing about my Cardinals 24 hours a day, and now all of a sudden that sports kind of landscape is going to be fragmented in the state. Yeah, I, you know, and, and let me tell you, the popularity of the college basketball game in this state is never going to decline. I mean, you have such passionate U.K. fans and U of L fans and, and the other programs that you mentioned. College basketball is very successful and very well followed. Uh, but again, I think that, uh, you know, having a professional basketball team here would not detract from any of those programs. In fact, I think it would be an enhancement uh, when, when Coach Cal was uh, at the University of Memphis and the Memphis Grizzlies moved there from Vancouver uh, he he was in favor of it. He wasn't worried about the competition. Uh, he knew he could use it as a recruiting tool because all of these young men think that uh, you know they're on they're on the short on, on the short mm-hmm. trip to uh, the NBA, and uh, so it, it wouldn't detract. I think it would enhance the basket the college basketball in this state. 
Very good. What else do we need to know? I mean, obviously, you mentioned about the NBA arena. I mean, I, I mean, first of all, you know, I probably should have asked this question off the top, so I'll just ask it now. We look. It, it goes without saying that, kind of in these wild, uncertain times, the the with uh, the situation going on outside of sports and in the real world, the NBA probably is not going to tomorrow decide to expand because we don't even know when they're going to play actual games. But what in a perfect world where you know the economy is different and the health crisis is different like what is the actual process to going about uh in trying to position yourself to get an nba team i would just be curious it probably should have been the first question i asked shame on me for not asking that one to begin with it, well it, uh, there's nothing and and this is probably um uh frustrating is not the right word this is probably the most challenging part of what we're doing here in Louisville. And that is, there is nothing we can do to make the NBA go any faster. Mm -hmm. This is certainly on their timeline. And like I said, we're not even sure that the NBA uh, has expansion on the horizon. The last time I talked to Commissioner Silver, uh, he said that the expansion wasn't even on the, the table. But here's one thing that uh, if, if anything positive in, in the NBA can come out of this, you know, any, the quickest way for owners to make up lost revenue in this time would be expansion fees because, number one, expansion fees are not basketball-related income, so they don't have to share that with the players. Hmm. Uh, Interesting. Those, those fees would go directly to the league and to the owners and and so what we what we've been charged with Aaron is to make sure that if and when the NBA decides to expand we have all of all of our um, options ready to go as I said earlier we have great fan base great corporate support great arena and and we would then make a presentation uh, to the league about having a, uh, an expansion team here in Louisville, and then the Board of Governors, the owners would decide, and as you said, there's going to be a lot of competition if, if that comes about. Seattle, Las Vegas, Kansas City, Mexico City, a lot of, a lot of cities have been, have been mentioned, but uh, we think we can make a pretty good argument that the NBA should be in Kentucky. There was a, a talk many years ago. I, I don't know if this has been confirmed or not since but that when David Stern was the commissioner and obviously that was many years ago now uh probably seven eight nine ten years ago is that he kind of took a personal pride in helping organizations that were kind of struggling financially so that they didn't have to move and I think obviously the most famous example was when the NBA basically took over the New Orleans Pelicans I think they were the Hornets at the time while they were looking for an owner um do you think that if an organization was struggling in any given city, and we're not, you know, we're not, uh, uh, you know, getting uh, political here to get a team from another city or, or trying to convince another team to leave their city, but um, do you feel like if a team was struggling financially, if they just weren't drawing, if there just was an interest, that Commissioner Silver, as it currently stands, would be willing to consider moving a team, which obviously could also help Louisville as well? Yeah, I, I think that would be the last option. Uh, as, as you said, uh, you know, in any league, any sports franchise uh, hates to see a, a, a team move uh, because it shows weakness in that area. You mentioned New Orleans. 
I would also mention Sacramento. Yep. When Sacramento was going to Seattle, that was a done deal. Mm. And the commissioner stepped in and made sure that the team stayed in, in Sacramento. Yes. So um, that's always a possibility, and we would be open to that if anybody would be interested. Uh, but I think the league, as, as strong and as popular as the league is right now, that would be the last thing that they would want to see happen is a franchise have to move. Very good. Anything else, the, the casual fan, just, just anybody listening to this interview that doesn't know as much about the campaign, whether it is the city of Louisville, whether it is the state of Kentucky, whether it is the state of the NBA as it currently stands, I mean, is there anything else somebody that doesn't know much about this campaign should know, Dan? Well, the one thing that I'm really excited about, Aaron, is just yesterday uh, we launched a brand-new website, very professionally done website, uh, and it's uh, NBA2, the number two, Lou, L-O-U. Uh, and if anybody has any interest in finding out about uh, any more of it, I think they'd really enjoy perusing that website because it's, uh, it, it's terrific and, and there are uh, options there for people to, to sign up and get involved in what we're calling the Ambassador Club. And so... Um, we're really excited about that that website that just launched yesterday. All right, so now let's talk some hoop now. I mean, you know, listen, we're going to get this team to Louisville, uh, but I want to talk about what so much happened in your career. And I have so many questions, and, and you know, and, and it's really cool to talk to somebody like you that, again, I don't want to make you sound like you're past a certain age, you know, but you, you've seen a lot of basketball in your day, and you can answer a lot of questions for me. So first of all, I mentioned all-time leading scorer at the University of Kentucky. You played for Adolph Rupp, and I don't know how many people that are around now kind of would have the vivid memories that you do of Coach Rupp, a Hall of Famer, you know, multiple national championships. For people who didn't live through that era or don't remember, you know, Coach Rupp is obviously this larger-than-life figure. The, the Rupp Arena is obviously named after him. Uh, what are your memories of him? And for people who have only seen uh, pictures or videos or, or don't know much about him, what would you tell people about him? Well, it, it, first of all, he was a, a very strict disciplinarian. If you can believe this, Aaron, we weren't even able to uh, to talk in practice. Really? Uh, there, there was just uh, the bounce of the basketball, the squeak of the shoes, and, and Coach Rupp. But he was... He, he was so far ahead of his time, you didn't have to scout our team. Uh, all, all you had to do was go down to the bookstore and buy one of Coach Rupp's books, and every play that we ran uh, was diagrammed right there in his book. But uh, he was a strict disciplinarian, very intelligent uh, in all phases of life. And I got to know Coach Rupp. If, if, if our relationship had ended, uh, with my eligibility, uh, I probably wouldn't uh, uh, be as appreciative of Coach Rupp as I am. Uh, we we got to know each other. He was uh, we had a basketball camp together after I graduated, and uh, after he retired at UK, he was connected with the Colonels for a while. And um, I really got to know him uh, as a man, not as a basketball coach, and uh, 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 really appreciative for 
for everything he did for me and for and for my career. See, that's really funny because, you know, you hear coaches now say players don't communicate well enough. They don't talk on the floor. I mean, so when you got on the floor and you're uh, switching defenses or, you know, calling out a play, I mean, how did you guys know what to say, when to say if you're not communicating in practice? Yeah, well, defensively was a little different. Number okay. one, Coach Rupp never played zone defense. Uh, and uh, he, he he only played man-to-man, and there wasn't a lot of switching. There wasn't a lot of helping. It was basically, this is the guy you're going to guard. You're going to guard him straight up one-on-one, and, uh, you know, if, if you let him score, you've done a bad job. <laughs> and so, so there wasn't really a lot of need to, uh, to, to communicate defensively on offense, uh, there was no play calling. Every play that we ran was dictated by where the first pass went okay. and where the passer uh, then cut to. Uh, one play was guard to guard. Another play was guard to forward with the forward, with the guard either going in front of the forward or behind. Um, so it was all predicated on the passing and the cutting. There were no plays called whatsoever. So you were first-team All-American in 1970, and I was looking at that team that year, uh, and one guy who was on it was a guy that I believe you played against in the SEC, Pete Maravich. Um, he's another guy. You know, we, we've seen videos. We've seen – crazy. I mean, it's just insane. But, I mean, this is a guy that averaged over 40 points a game without the three-point shot, one of the great passers of all time, one of the great playmakers of all time. Tell people again that have only seen him through pictures, videos on YouTube, what it was like to kind of lace him up against that guy. Yeah, um, Pete. Pete scored a lot of points because he took a lot of shots. Okay. Uh, he, he wasn't. A, he wasn't a great shooter, but I will say this about Pete: he was the best passer and ball handler I've ever seen, bar none. I mean, you put up anybody you want to, Magic Johnson. Uh, you know, all of the great, uh, Bob Cousy, all of the great ball handlers and passers. Pete had no peers as far as that part of his game was concerned. And, and a, a lot of coaches in the SEC, we were contemporary. So I played head to head with Pete six times. Okay. Uh, during our career. And a lot of the coaches in the SEC would try to devise defenses to stopping. You know, the, the triangle and two or the box and one. But Pete was so clever with the ball, you could run all five guys at him and he could get uh, enough room to get a shot off. Coach Rupp's philosophy was exactly the opposite. We're, Pete can't beat us by himself. We're going to play him one-on-one. We're going to make sure nobody else on the team hurts us. And I, I think these statistics, Aaron, are close. In the six games that we played head-to-head, Pete averaged 52 points a game. <laughs> he, he, got, he scored 63. The last game we played our senior year was at LSU. He scored 63 points. The closest LSU ever came to beating us was nine points. Wow. And so, um, you know, I tell people you might be interested in this statistic. My senior year at Kentucky – uh, I was second in the nation in scoring, okay. and I only lost. And I only lost the scoring championship by ten points. Oh my goodness! Uh, wait a second. Wait a second. A game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> what I figured. That's insane. That is. 
Pete averaged Pete averaged forty four points oh, a game my God. our our senior year. Wow. So that means that you average 34, which is insane even by any standard that we live in. I don't know if the college game was 40 minutes back then or not, but 30, like forget the fact that that guy averaged 44 a game. Averaging 34 a game is a big freaking deal, man. <laughs> without, without, as you just said, without a three point line. How did you get so, so, so what were the, how did you become, such a, a gifted score. I mean, was that something that always came natural to you? I mean, what was your, for people, again, and I hate to do it, I hate to say it, a lot of people might not remember seeing you in person, and hopefully a lot of people listening do remember seeing you in person. Well, but 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 give the uh, scouting report on Dan Issel, because 34 points a game is nothing, is, is no... no uh, you know, no small feat, and obviously you continued it in the NBA and the ABA where you were a six-time All-Star in both the ABA and the NBA, so... Well, I I would say that uh, I I had a decent mid range jump shot. Uh, I wouldn't have been taking any three pointers, even if there was a three point line. But from uh, fifteen eighteen feet in, um, I I could uh, I could shoot pretty well. I think that's a, a part of of a lot of people's game that's missing today. It seems like. Everything is either a three-point shot or, or a dunk shot, uh, but uh, but but that I guess would be my strongest point. And uh, I was I was a, a decent shooter. I think that senior year at Kentucky, I shot fifty-five percent from the field. And uh, you know, defenses are a lot more complicated today, but uh, you don't see anybody shooting fifty-five percent from the field. You certainly don't. You certainly don't. And I do want to ask you about one more guy that you may have played against, but at the very least, I know you watched him. Uh, and that's Wilt Chamberlain. And it's so funny because, you know, you, you come across these stats and these figures and, and you know, you kind of lose perspective. But I'm a big reader. I love to read. And I've read Wilt, Wilt's, uh, you know, um, whatever, his uh, biography cover to cover. And I think it's really interesting in this time we're having all these conversations about Michael Jordan, about LeBron James, obviously the late Kobe Bryant with everything that happened. I don't think that anyone under about 45 years old, maybe even a little bit older, realizes how good Wilt was. And I did some research to, to back this up. He averaged over yeah. 50, he averaged over 50 points a game in a season. He led the league in assists in a different season. He played over 48 minutes a game in one season, which means that he played every game to the extent to the entire game plus overtime. He was a great high jumper uh, on in track. He was a great volleyball player after his NBA career was over. For people who did not see that guy play, am I am I overselling him? I mean, he just seems like maybe one of the most gifted players to ever walk the earth, and probably doesn't get the credit he deserves. Yeah, no, no, no question about it. I only had a chance to play against Wilt one time. Uh, the beginning of my career was kind of the end of his, and uh, we we staged an ABA. Of course, it was not not sanctioned. The players did this all on their own. Oh, wow. But we had a couple of ABA NBA All Star games uh, the summer in the summertime, and I did get to play against Wilt. In, in one of those games, but you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, he, he was so, so far advanced physically, uh, the way he could run, the way he could jump, the way he could pass the ball. You know, the story, Aaron, about him leading the league in assists was he went in to get 
to sign his contract. And, of course, in those days, you just signed contracts year to year. And I think Wilt had averaged like 50 points a game. And uh, they wouldn't give him a raise because they said that uh, he wasn't a very good passer. Oh, really? So that, that that was why the following year he came out and led the league in assists <laughs> because because they wouldn't give him a raise. So now he was a he was a phenomenal basketball player. That's for sure. Yeah, I just I, I I had gotten into this argument recently with somebody, and I just think you know obviously with the Michael Jordan documentary coming out and all that stuff. Uh, I think it's kind of raised kind of the conversations about the greatest of all time and all that stuff. And I just kind of feel like. Um, I'm not saying that that because of the championships that Michael Jordan won or that Bill Russell won or LeBron's on three now, potentially a third championship with a third different organization, that you know we shouldn't give credit to other players or that we should put Wilt wherever. I'm just saying I just feel like that guy gets lost in the shuffle. I should ask you, by the way, have you been watching this Michael Jordan documentary? How have you enjoyed it? Obviously, your careers I don't think really overlap that much, but I'm sure as a basketball fan, I'm guessing you're enjoying this thing. Yeah, absolutely, especially now that there's nothing else relevant sports-wise. Yep. I guess you'd have to put the uh, NFL draft in there, but there, is, there isn't much uh, uh, sporting-wise on TV uh, except replays of old games. So yep. uh, I, I'm really enjoying this. I, I, uh, Michael, Michael's uh, rookie year was my last year in the NBA, but I certainly uh, – had a chance to watch him play and had a chance to coach against him. Uh, and uh, to me, to me, he's still the, the, the best basketball player that ever lived. And, uh, of course he didn't, he didn't come out uh, of school with that. I mean, he was an all American, but he didn't come out of school as the greatest player ever, mm-hmm. uh, was, uh, was certainly able to demonstrate that once he got to the bulls and, and won all those championships. Well, it's another conversation for another day, but I think it speaks to the fact that a lot of the best players, as we get the NBA becomes younger and younger, players leave college earlier and earlier. You know, the Steph Currys, Damian Lillards, Clay Thompsons, a lot of the best players actually did stay in college two, three, four uh, years. I would ask, last question, I'll let you go. I am curious. um, you, You clearly still have a passion for the game. Is there... Um, a favorite player uh, now or a favorite team now that you enjoy watching above all others? Uh, you, you know, I, uh, I, I've, I've always enjoyed watching teams uh, that, that play as a team, not, not, uh, not individuals. Um, but I, I have to say, you know, my favorite teams to watch were the San Antonio Spurs when they were, in their heyday with, uh, with Tim Duncan and, uh, and, and, uh, David Robinson and that crew. And of course they were able to win a, a, a great deal of championships and, and playing team basketball. So that's one of my favorite teams. I would say today, um, <clears throat> my favorite player is, uh, Kawhi Leonard. Yep. And, and the, and the reason I say that is, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm an old man and, uh, I, I'm that, you know, get off my yard guy, <laughs> but I don't, I don't enjoy all of this, uh, with players trying to, to bring attention to themselves, you know, sure. dunking the basketball and then standing there pounding their chest or flexing their muscles. And Kawhi to me 
all he does is come out and kick your butt. Mm-hmm. His his expre- his expression never changes. You don't see him play into the crowd. I mean, he, he'll score on you in so many different ways and just turn and run back and make sure he stops you on the other end. So right now, of all the current players, he would be my favorite. Well, I'll tell you this, is that um, maybe I'm an old man, get off my lawn guy too, but he's actually my favorite player too, and it's funny because I live in L.A. and my wife grew up a Lakers fan, and for many years I, I really, I still do really enjoy watching LeBron, and this is another conversation, I'm not putting you in the middle of it, but you know, he's done some things off the court that are just, it's just frustrating, and this past uh, season, that before this season, but last year when we had a finals, the way that Kawhi, and I know he missed regular season games and all that stuff, but put a, a city, a region, a country on his entire back, and like you said, it, it, it didn't feel like it phased him at all. Uh, I will tell you this, Dan, he did ruin my wedding night because he chose the Clippers in the middle of my wedding reception in L.A., so we, we had a lot of people looking at their phones when they were supposed to be looking at my wife and I, so I always tease her about that, but uh, but other than that, he's my guy, so uh, Kawhi Leonard, uh, maybe uh, we'll talk about it in the future, but again... Dan Issel, Basketball Hall of Famer. The website is NBA2LOU. Dan, this was a lot of fun. we got to do this again soon. Thank you for the time. That was a lot of fun. Anytime, Aaron. I I appreciate you having me, and uh, we'll do it again. Step into the world of power loyalty and luck i'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse with family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.